0: Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, Progress in the Treatment of Myelodysplastic Syndromes. And today's program is a, a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer and blood cancer organizations. And I really want to thank them for their really helping to spread the word about the program. And we have on the program today... Um, over uh, two hundred and fifty participants on the call today and you come from all over the United States from both urban rural and suburban areas and we also have international participants from Brazil Canada Iraq Saudi Arabia and the United Kingdom so really um it's a, a really bit of a, a global call as well and um I just want to uh let you all know that um, we are delighted that you're all being on the call today. And today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb, and I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. Um, and actually, before we introduce our first speaker, I want to ask you just a few uh, questions before we start, just to get a sense of what you know going into the program. So um, I was just going to ask you just a few questions, and so those questions begin with the first one. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the important role of staging and diagnosing in myelodysplastic syndromes, Um, and again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand that the current standard of care for myelodysplastic syndromes, again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And um, the next question is, I understand the importance of new and emerging treatments for myelodysplastic syndromes. Again, one is the highest rating and uh, five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. The next question is, I understand tips to manage the symptoms, side effects, and discomfort of myelodysplastic syndromes. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question will be, I understand the significance of clinical trials for myelodysplastic syndromes. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in this polling. Um, it really helps us to understand um uh, really what you know coming into this program and also helps us to better plan programs um going into the future. So it really helps us enormously um, all of our programming. And uh and um so our next now we I'd like to do our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Ruben Mesa. And Dr. Messa is Um, Executive Director of May's Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, MD MD Anderson. May's Family Foundation, Distinguished University Presidential Chair. May's uh, Professor of Medicine, UT Health, MD Anderson. um, UT Health San Antonio Cancer Center and NCI uh, Designated Cancer Center. And Dr. Messa will be addressing overview of myelodysplastic syndromes, including staging, diagnosing and staging in the context of COVID-19. He will also be addressing the current standard of care, key questions to ask during telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and next steps um, after treatment and follow-up care. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Messa.
2: Carolyn, thank you so much for, for the opportunity to, to be here. I always enjoy participating in these important conversations. So my job is to, is to help us get the conversation rolling as it relates to myelodysplastic syndromes. So for many, when they're diagnosed with a disease like myelodysplastic syndromes, or let's say MDS for short, it's the first time they've heard about the disease. The name, myelo, means bone, Dysplasia means what a physician uh, calls a cell in the bone marrow that looks like it's not working as it's supposed to. And syndrome, of course, just meaning a group of diseases. So it's really a group of several different types of diseases we look at together that interfere with how the bone marrow is working. And individuals are typically found to have MBS because they have low blood count. Either anemia, which is a drop in the red blood cells, the key oxygen-carrying cells from our lungs to the rest of the body, or a drop in the white blood cell count that fights infection or the platelet counts that help the blood to clot. It might be a drop in one, two, or all three of those key cells. Now, the first step in having a diagnosis is your doctor will look at a whole variety of different causes that can lower the blood counts. Some of these you're familiar with, uh, having inadequate amounts of iron or iron deficiency. That's probably one of the most common causes for anemia around the world. Or a decrease in B12 or medication-related effects or autoimmune diseases. There are many different causes that they will consider. But what MDS is, is an illness in the bone marrow that acts as the factory for the blood that interferes with the ability of the bone marrow to make the cells that we need. So the building blocks are there. What MDS is not is iron deficiency, B12, or these other issues. So patients will frequently ask, well, if I took more iron or B12 or changed my diet, would it overcome my MDS? Unfortunately, no. It's fundamentally a disease of the bone marrow. The machinery for making the blood isn't working. So why does that occur? Well, what sets it off we don't fully know yet. But we do know is that there are many important genes that are involved with the creation of the blood and that as we age, there is a greater tendency for one or more of these genes to become damaged or mutated that interfere with the function of the bone marrow. And that has become key in terms of our ability to diagnose the disease, to pick it up, as well as in even our treatment of the disease. So one, we try to come up with a formal diagnosis that your doctor uh, obtains by a history, a physical examination, likely a bone marrow biopsy along with a genetic test and others to understand how the disease is affecting you. Now, a disease like this does not have a stage, as we might think of a stage with a disease like breast cancer that has a stage one, a stage two, a stage three, a stage four. A disease like this is more one that we think more about. One, what is the risk? So we look at all of these different tests and we have some complicated uh, ways that doctors look at all the clinical information and have a sense of how much risk the disease gives you from a uh, very good risk to very poor risk in terms of how life-threatening the disease might be. Second, I look at how it's affecting the patient who I'm visiting with. is there anemia? Do they need transfusions? Is that anemia giving them symptoms? Uh, is the white blood cell count low? It being low, has that led to infections or hospitalizations? Are the platelets low? Has that led to bleeding or bruising? Are there symptoms? So if we look at all of these factors and get a sense of what is the disease burden as well as what is the disease risk. Now, all of these different tests that I speak of, we feel that can be safely done during this evolving period of COVID. So in the initial uh, throes of COVID back in the spring of 2020, it is true we were delaying people having tests, but we might delay a bone marrow biopsy or other factors. Now, all of your healthcare systems have worked very hard so that the medical care that you need can be delivered to you in a safe way. They're screening patients, they screen their uh, their workers, there's masks that are used, most people have been vaccinated. So again, COVID hopefully should not be a barrier to you receiving the appropriate diagnosis, staging, or care that you require. Now, how do we treat splastic syndrome? Well, we're going to break up this discussion between both myself and my good friend, Dr. Kamraji. I'm going to mention some of the therapies that we have available to us now, and Dr. Kamraji is going to be talking about how we take those to the next level, as well as many new therapies in development. But first, we try to determine what is our treatment goal. Fundamentally, there's three different approaches we can do with a disease like this. One, sometimes the disease is mild and we will observe the disease. Second, the disease is problematic and we're trying to improve a low blood count. Or third, we may try to cure the disease. Now, we have a cure, which is bone marrow transplantation, that may or may not be appropriate depending upon someone's age, risk of disease, presence of a donor, and your own wishes. It's a therapy that has many – it's a complex therapy. It's comprehensive. It takes many months, and it can be life-threatening. It's a complicated decision that we consider in particular for individuals, the younger they are, the greater their risk. In terms of medical treatments, we now have a variety of different medicines that have been approved, some that really target anemia, such as erythropoietin stimulating agents to, to bump up anemia, things like erythropoietin, darbopoietin. We have medications that can be very helpful based on certain genetic changes, such as the deletion 5Q and lenalidomide. We have new medications that have helped with anemia, particularly in certain subsets of disease, with a medicine called Laspatercet. And we have medicines, both that can be given IV, sub-Q, or now orally, that are agents that are called hypomethylating agents that are medicines that might help to delay progression to acute leukemia and or improve low blood count. Additionally, there's other medications that are approved with more aggressive disease with acute leukemia that we sometimes will consider in this setting. So there's a lot of decision making that goes into coming up with a treatment plan between yourself and your doctor. Now, one thing that has evolved during the time of COVID is I think a greater ability for us to be able to interact with our patients through telemedicine and telehealth. Where I could share with my patients with MDS, I may see them in the office for certain visits and by telemedicine for others. And this has helped to increase our ability to connect. It's helped my ability to help individuals that live at a greater distance it's also particularly during the periods of time where we've had peak surges and other things, allowed patients to uh, minimize their uh, kind of exposure in public and things of that nature. Some of that risk has decreased as they have become vaccinated, as, as the safety factor has increased in society. But I do think telemedicine is here to stay as an important complement. Not a replacement of face-to-face meetings, but a, a complement to many of those things that, that have been evolved. Now, once you and your doctor have come up with your treatment plan, it's important to have a sense, what are the next steps? How long might I expect this therapy to be beneficial? How do we judge its success? If it's not successful, what's our next option? Do we have a different medicine? Do we go with a clinical trial? This is a chronic disease The relationship you have with your hematologist is a long-term one, where we work together, seeing how you're doing, trying to minimize the impact of the disease uh, on your life to the greatest degree that we can. We try to maximize both our testing and our evolving uh, options in terms of medicines to have MDS have the most minimal impact on your life that we hopefully can have it have, and if there are if the disease becomes a larger problem, we then adjust accordingly. So it's a partnership. It's teamwork. There's a variety of individuals uh, on that team, and we'll be discussing that as we go forward with our uh, other speakers today as well as in your questions and answers. And with that, I will hand it back to Dr. Messner. Thank you.
1: Uh- uh, thank you so much, Dr. Messner. That was really um, outstanding and just a wonderful Really, context and really a wonderful overview of MDS. So, just really, um, really uh, excellent. Thank you, thank you very much. And um, our next speaker um, is uh, Dr. Rami uh, Kamrashi and uh, Dr. Kamrak. She will be addressing. Um, well, actually, first of all, Dr. Kamrashi is a senior member and professor of oncologic science, section head, leukemia and MDS. Vice Chair, Malignant Hematology Department, Moffitt Cancer Center. And Dr. Kamrashi will be addressing new and emerging treatment approaches, the role of clinical trials, how research improves treatment options, uh, tips to manage symptoms, side effects, and discomfort in the context of COVID-19, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine uh, um, appointments, including uh, technology, and list of prepared questions. So it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kamarashi.
3: Thank you very much for the kind introduction and uh, echoing what Dr. Mesa said. I'm really happy to be here always and find those very informative and opportunity for us to talk to patients even beyond our practice. Uh, and I think uh, Ruben had said a great, uh, you know, uh, background for me to jump into talking about my part uh, where we are excited actually in the field of my plastic syndrome that, you know, finally we are hopefully going to have much more options for our patients. Uh, so as Dr. Mesa said, like I think, you know, the most important is really originally setting the goals of, of care, uh, as he nicely explained. And I think, obviously, when we think of MDS patients, we think of what we call the higher risk, where, unfortunately, the disease could be impacting the survival, and we are thinking of cure and transplant and more aggressive therapies, uh, while in lower-risk disease, uh, we are trying to alleviate the complications of low blood counts and the need for transfusions, which I do think they reflect to improve patients' quality of life if we are successful doing that. And as mentioned, there are a few treatments uh, available and approved for our patients that I think do impact survival and do help patients in terms of improving their symptoms. Uh, but most of those medications, short of the transplant, are not curative. And patients uh, will, will respond to them, a subset of patients will respond. And then after a while, unfortunately, they stop working. So there is always an unmet need for us to uh, find new treatments for our patients, try to improve the cure rates, uh, improve the quality of life, and so forth. And As you know, clinical trials go into different stages. Uh, Most of what we are talking about here is like interventional clinical trials where we are using new medications. There are the phase one clinical trial where the drug safety is being tested. Typically, those are usually done after all the standard of treatments had stopped working. There is phase two where we have known the safety of the drug, but now we are going to see is it effective, for example, in MDS. And then there is phase three, which should really uh, lead to the approval of the drug, where you know a group of patients will get the investigational drug, sometimes in addition to the standard drug, compared to the standard drug alone. And that's how we get drugs approved. And when I think of clinical trials in MDS, obviously I think of the kind of what we call the upfront the first-line treatment for patients versus, you know, uh, later on, you know, clinical trials that offer some, you know, options of therapy for patients after the approved ones uh, had failed to work. Uh, So in the last, you know, year we had the first drug to be approved in MDS after almost like a decade of no drugs being approved. Uh, So that always will give hopefully the uh, field momentum to hopefully have more drugs approved. That drug is called Luspatercept, or the trade name is Reblosil, and that's for patients with uh, anemia and the lower risk MDS. So let me focus a little bit on the lower risk MDS and start with that. So now we have another option. The Luspatercept is an injection. It's given every three weeks. Uh, It works in a way that it actually uh, improves the final phases of the erythroid maturation, so part of what happens in MDS that we have a defect in the development of the red blood cells, and that's how we, you know, end to be anemic and needing blood transfusions. And the the defects are in different stages of the red blood cell development, and it turns out that some of them are in the last stage, which we call erythroid maturation. And the drug patricept is a drug that will target that step or phase. And lead to improvement in the erythroid development. And it has been tested in patients with lower risk MDS that have a unique subtype called MDS with ring sideroblast. Uh, and that's when patients have like iron deposits in the erythroid cells in the bone marrow. Again, it's a unique subtype of MDS that usually have a good prognosis, but patients tend to become out of uh, need a lot of blood transfusions and develop anemias. So the Lisbatercept uh, in, in clinical trials was shown to be better than placebo in, in rendering patients transfusion independent, meaning that you know patients stopped needing blood transfusions with the treatment. And in some cases it reduced the uh, burden or the magnitude of blood uh, transfusions. Uh, and it was in general well tolerated. Uh, so this now is available and approved for patients with those ring-hydroblast subtype, uh, lower-risk MDS that are needing blood. But it's also being explored outside that setting into maybe upfront in all patients when they start treatment uh, to see if that would improve the responses, combination with other treatments, and so forth. The other drug that uh, we are exploring in lower-risk MDS is a drug called mtelistat uh, That's a drug that uh, Dr. Mesa also had been testing in uh, myelofibrosis, a similar, drug, a similar disease to MDS. Uh, where in, in you know in MDS uh, we've noted activity for this drug in phase one, phase two trials, where around 30 to 40% of the patients had become transfusion independent, some of them for a year or two. So now this is in a phase three in patients with lower risk. So again, the Spatercept is now available, approved by the FDA, but there is more interest in moving it forward mteristat is still investigational, but those two drugs are in the lower risk MDS. There is another drug uh, called droxadistat that's an earlier phase. Um, that drug um, works on the hypoxia pathway, how we sense the uh, or, or regulate the oxygen production, or the, the red blood cell production based on the oxygen. It's been used in patients with renal um, failure, uh, Uh, outside USA, and it also in the early phase had shown some promising activity in MDS patients. So I think we're gonna be hearing about some of those uh, options uh, uh, being moved forward. Now in the higher risk MDS, as Dr. Mesa mentioned, we think of transplant for patients, and the backbone for treatment had been those, uh, what we call them, hypomethylating agents. There are two drugs available, are approved by the FDA, one called azacitidine, or VIDEZA is the trade name, and the other one is called d or Dacogen, and those two drugs have been shown to improve survival, push leukemia away, improve blood count, impact quality of life, but they are not curative. Uh, They work in less than half of the patients or over. One out of five patients will go into complete remission with those, and when they work, they work for a year, year and a half, then they stop working. So there is clearly also a huge unmet need in the higher-risk MDS, to try to improve that uh, for our patients. So there are several promising uh, treatments in, in clinical trials, um, and even before that, there's also newer hypometallating agents being developed. So again, uh, recently we had approval by the FDA for a oral formulation of this uh, uh called Encovi. So this is a pill that the patient can take at home, and uh, It is 100% bioequivalent to the IV injection, intravenous injection of the dicitabine. So at times like COVID, that could also minimize the patients coming to the office. Uh, There could be sometimes issues with the co-pays for it for some of our patients that it's more expensive. Uh, But it's equivalent in its efficacy to the uh, intravenous dicitabine. There is oral adacitabine being developed and approved in other settings, Uh, but we still don't know the equivalence to the subcutaneous or IV uh, azacitidine. But what's coming, obviously, that we are gonna be using uh, oral uh, medications uh, uh, in a lot of patients, uh, uh, you know, rather than the uh, standard subcutaneous or IV. Our other effort has been trying to, you know, find combination therapies, other medications that we add to the backbone of Vydesa or Dacogen that will improve either the uh, response rate, so a larger number of patients responding, or the durability. So, if a patient responds, they are going to be responsive for longer time. And there are several drugs in, in development. One is called migrillumab, that's an antibody actually that uh, we call it the don't eat me signal that blocks a receptor or antenna on the cells that's allowing the MDS cells to escape from the macrophages, which is part of our immune system that will eat uh, the the MDS cells. So this will allow the immune system basically to recognize the MDS cells. And this is now going in phase three. In the phase one, phase two shown very promising uh, doubling or tripling of the complete response rate, durable activity, and seems to be effective regardless of the type of mutations or complexity of the chromosome abnormalities. There are certain subtypes of MDS patients have complex uh, mishappenings that happened uh, in in the chromosome or the gene makeup that unfortunately tend to have lower responses to most of the treatments. And this one seems to be agonistic or works regardless of the presence of that mutation. And in general, well tolerated. So that's moving forward. Uh, uh, We have a drug called Venetoclax Uh, That approved for AML and now has become standard treatment to be combined with uh, azacitidine for patients with acute myeloid leukemia, which is considered the more aggressive stage uh, of MDS or where 30 or 40 percent of MDS patients could transform down the road and the is approved in that setting had been shown to improve survival, improve response rate, and we are moving that to also our patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, and there is, again, a phase three clinical trial ongoing. Another drug called pivindostat uh, also is going through phase three, which means, again, the final stages of approval. Uh, this drug, uh, also in a phase one, phase two, had shown that it You know, had improvement in the leukemia free survival, meaning pushing the leukemia away, uh, doubling or tripling the responses. Uh, In general, very safe profile does not add a decrease in the blood counts for patients. So that's also now moving in phase three. Um, There is a drug called sabatilumab that's also being tested in, in our patients. Uh, It has dual effect, it can affect the stem cells, or the leukemia stem cells, or the MDS stem cells, as well as engage the immune system. Uh, I'm giving you a lot of names of things that can sound completely foreign, but the idea that there is a lot of medications being added to the backbone of the current treatment we have, all of those had shown promising, already have gone through phase one, phase two, and in the final stages, so I hope that we will see this translating to new and standards of, of treatment that improve the outcome for our patients. And I think in, in the higher risk, we are start, starting to think of this principle of total therapy, that we are gonna think of doublet or triplet treatments that we provide for our patients, look at who achieves a deep response, uh, look and when to consider the transplant and con, concept of this total therapy that we drive to our patients. It's important also to mention that, you know, sometimes asking the doctors to check for the somatic mutations or the gene mishappenings that happened could guide or tailor the treatment a little bit. There are, again, some medications approved for uh, AML that sometimes we can borrow and use in in MDS. So I would say the... uh, Clinical trials landscape is really promising. I, I don't recall we've had a time where we would have four or five randomized clinical trials in, in MDS. So I'm really hoping that this will translate to some newer approved treatment. As I mentioned, we have a new drug in the first you know, 10 years being approved for MDS, the Spatercept. Uh, I think obviously during COVID time uh, we've been affected in, in conducting those clinical trials. There was some temporary hold uh, originally on the studies but now that had uh, moved uh, uh, on and i think you know most of the studies now are active and, and recruiting patients uh so i think i'll stop here uh and see if there are any questions or uh move to the next session
1: oh, excellent thank you so much Dr. Kamraki. that was really an um, excellent and just very uh comprehensive and um um, excellent, very very well done uh, Thank you um, And our next speaker Is uh, Ms. Diana Burden And Ms. Burden is um, an oncology Dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center And Ms. Burden will be addressing the role Of the oncology dietitian And nutrition and hydration Concerns and tips So it's my great pleasure to turn this program over To my esteemed colleague, Ms. Burden
4: Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm glad to be part of today's presentation um, addressing these questions and concerns. Um, So, nutrition and hydration are essential for all of us. And especially while you're going through treatment, um, you might find that you experience eating differently. You may have some different responses um, to how you tolerate your diet, and this is unique to each individual. Not every person experiences the same course going through their treatment. And so it's so important that you are connected with your healthcare team. And a dietitian is part of your healthcare team, and we're here to help support you um, throughout your treatment course in helping you meet your nutrition goals um, and tolerate your diet as best as possible. Now some patients can experience side effects. And some of these side effects are things like nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, maybe mouth sores, and potentially fatigue. Um, everyone's, um, like I said, course is very different. So please connect with your healthcare team about your unique needs during your treatment course. So. The goal in nutrition and during your cancer treatment is to ensure that you're getting the nutrients, um, keeping your weight stable, maintaining your hydration during this course of treatment. And um, sometimes patients may experience side effects at one point and things may improve and maybe there's some different side effects they experience later. So there can be some changes in your diet throughout your course. And your dietitian can help you with Providing specific guidelines based on what you're going through to help modify your diet as needed to meet your nutrition goals and meeting your hydration needs as well. So please bring all questions to your healthcare team. Um, sometimes patients, you know, dismiss certain things or just um, don't really think it's a very big deal, but communicating that can really help your healthcare team know better how to help you. Now, Oftentimes during your treatment, you'll be given some medications um, to help with side effects, and it's really important that you understand how to use these. If you have any questions, ask for some um, additional information, maybe even writing something out to help remind you, but a lot of times medications will be given to help with addressing things like the nausea and vomiting, maybe even the diarrhea and constipation, and even the mouth sores, and so... Um, it's important that you know how to use your medication and when to take it, so that you can be as comfortable as possible. Now, there might be some foods that just don't agree with you the same way they did before treatment. And keeping a record of those and bringing them to your your healthcare team um, helps them understand also what you're going through. So, um, that may be another course that works well in communicating what you're experiencing. So nutrition is important, like I said, not only in maintaining you the energy and helping you do the things you enjoy, but also keeping you on the course of treatment. Um, Sometimes when patients um, go through side effects, they just don't eat as much. Maybe their appetite's um, impacted. And um, we just want to make sure that you're as strong and healthy as possible during your treatment. So maintaining that communication is so important. Now hydration is another part of It's a big picture, and sometimes it gets left off the radar. We're so focused on eating and maintaining your weight and addressing how to uh, pick foods and choose foods to help with these side effects that hydration isn't always part of the conversation off, off the bat. But dehydration is very serious. Um, it can happen with a lot of patients when your appetite's decreased or if you're having a lot of issues with vomiting and diarrhea, you can lose fluids that way. And so it's very important that you do maintain good hydration. Now, in general, most folks need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. And um, a product is considered a hydrating fluid is if it's liquid at room temperature. So these are things like water, milk, sports drinks, Um, we do encourage decaffeinated. Um, Oftentimes the patients are drinking a lot of caffeine that can um, cause more of a a loss of fluid. So we we may talk with you a little bit about that if you're a person who tends more towards caffeinated beverages. But um, in general, that's what most patients need. Now, there might be some treatments or side effects, like I said, that increase this fluid need, um, but that'll be a conversation between you and your healthcare team. So there's um, a, bunch of us to help here, a bunch of us here to help support you during this experience, and we want to maintain um, good communication throughout your entire time. So please do reach out to all of us. We're here to help you. But in closing, there are several members, and we're all dedicated to you. So please know how to reach them, and the sooner you reach out, the better. Thanks so much for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll now pass the line back to Carolyn.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was excellent and very comprehensive. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care's services. I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. Um, and I just want to be sure that you all are familiar with the services that we offer at Cancer Care. They're free services. They're support services um, offered by oncology, social workers. Um, So just to start off with, um, we do offer a number of free programs and services, and they are available to you um, primarily um, by calling our HOPE line. Uh, It's a phone line at 800-813-HOPE or 4673, um, or you may visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And what are those services? And they are provided by... Uh, trained oncology social workers. And those services include um, actually uh, just support to call and get support from our, our social workers who who, call, who speak to on the phone with your questions or concerns. Um, and then, of course, um, then we do offer case management services. These are very interesting services in which we um, assist people to actually uh, Perhaps there's a, a need that you have that we don't meet, um, that we don't have the services for. Perhaps those services exist in your community or in some other, for some other national organization. We will actually virtually take you there. Um, we won't actually be able to travel with you there, but we actually will take you there um, and be sure that you're linked up to that service, and we will continue working with you until you get the service you need. If that service doesn't work, we'll find another one until you're connected with the, with the things you need. And, and some of the things that you may need include things like just a lot of issues around food or um, housing issues or just a, a range of issues that people are confronting, uh, financial issues, all sorts of issues that people are really confronting and that we're able to assist with. And addition, we do offer... Um, financial and um, assistance we offer that both through our cancer cure financial assistance programs our uh, our copay uh, assistance program copay assistance programs. Um, we also do have special funds that we have uh, for people struggling with COVID issues as well. So we have um, a number of different funds to pull from that may be able to as- be of assistance to you. Um, and then there are a number of different uh, national services that are available as well through other organizations like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Um, so there are uh, lots of different organizations that we will link you with as well. Those are important services. We also do offer um, a number of different uh, uh, support groups, um, uh, online support groups. Those are really online for safety. They're online support groups. Um, And we also do offer uh, services to you, um, both these type of workshops that you can attend. We do about 75 of these workshops per year, um, and on different types of cancers and different types of issues. Um, and, uh, And then we also do offer, of course, a number of publications that you can access, again, from uh, from us as well, from our website. So there's a lot of different services we offer, just to give you just an array of the different um, services you can access from Cancer Care. And we're not the only nonprofit organization that will provide these services. Um, there are many other organizations that we will link you with as well, so that just so you have an idea of the range of services. Now, before we um, move on to... Um, to taking a further our, to our Q&A session, um, I do want to actually um, ask you a few more questions before um, we move on to the Q&A. So um, I'm going to uh, begin to ask you a few more questions um, just to get a sense of what you've learned um, from today's program. So the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge. Uh, the important role of staging and diagnosing for myelodysplastic syndromes. And, again, that would be both in terms of uh, the ratings would be one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about my knowledge of the current standard of care for myelodysplastic syndromes. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in my knowledge of the importance of new and emerging treatments four myelodysplastic syndromes. Um, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then just two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with my healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage the symptoms, side effects, and discomfort of myelodysplastic syndromes. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then the last question will be As a result of this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for myelodysplastic syndromes. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these uh, questions. It actually helps us to get a better um, understanding of your needs as we plan future programs in general. On, on this particular topic and also on other topics that we will be offering as well. So um, with, with that being said, we now are going to move on to our Q&A. So I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take um, as many of your questions as possible. So I'm going to ask um, Michelle to explain to all of you how our queue-up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Michelle?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And um, we have a
1: question in front of our online participants. I'm gonna start with Dr. Messa. Um, What are the risk groups for MDS and how does this affect my treatment options?
2: So the risk groups go from, you know, very favorable to unfavorable, with risks being around blood counts, around blasts, around the genetic changes and and cytogenetic changes. And it impacts most significantly the decision-making regarding around stem cell transplantation, where Uh, the higher the risk of disease, the more uh, aggressive we sometimes are in terms of the consideration of that therapy because of the life-threatening nature of the disease. Uh, Additionally, uh, risk can factor in to uh, how we choose our treatment strategy. So as Dr. Kamraji had mentioned as well, there are therapies that we have that are more impactful for lower-risk disease, particularly in people who have primarily anemia, where the burden of the disease is related to the the anemia, the fatigue, and other symptoms that can be present from anemia, whereas higher-risk disease that we believe has a higher risk of progression towards acute myeloid leukemia that can be much more acutely life-threatening is closer tied with uh, therapies like azacitidine, like decitabine, that have as one of their major benefits uh, hopefully both prolonging how long an individual lives with the disease as well as trying to delay movement toward acute leukemia. So it's not a one-to-one directly between the risk group and treatment, but it certainly is an important consideration. Excellent.
3: Awesome. Thank you. Um, Uh, Dr. Kamashi, do you want to add to that? Um... No, I think Ruben covered it nicely. So, yes, exactly. So I think he mentioned originally, I think, also something we always try to explain to the patients, that the staging in this is not like a lung or colon cancer. There is no principle of the disease spreading around. So the the, the, the staging is really based on the risk of this transforming to acute myeloid leukemia over time. And the risk of this, unfortunately, affecting the survival from complications related to the disease. So we look at the blast percentage, the uh, degree of, uh, you know, low blood count or how bad are the blood counts and the makeup of the cells. And, you know, I think nowadays most people use this. There are different staging systems people have tried to develop over years, but the most commonly used now is this International Prognostic Scoring System or the revised IPSS. And nowadays, I think most of the places complement that by looking at the uh, mutation status, the molecular status of the disease. So, in addition to looking at the uh, chromosome makeup of the cells under the, you know, uh, when we do the bone marrow, now we are more sophisticated that we can go at the gene level and we complement those. And at the end, as Dr. Mesa said, like we'll assign the patient to a group where we tailor the therapy based on the disease risk. Excellent,
1: and uh also another question now for you, um Dr. Kamraji, what is the most promising new treatment for m d s
3: So I think there is more than one, so as I mentioned, I think uh, you know I tried to cover some of those uh, i I think you know in general, we are moving from treating probably also m d s as one group or uh, or like just putting lower and higher risk but then we are moving to more, like, homogeneous groups based on the disease biology, the underlying mutations, and so forth. But, like, just to say, for example, as I mentioned, in the lower-risk MDS, Luspatercept is already approved. That's new drug, and hopefully will have wider implications. Uh, there is a drug called Mtstat. In the higher-risk, several combinations, as I mentioned uh Venetoclax, uh, Magrolimab, uh, uh, Paventostat, uh, Sabatolimab—like all of those are drugs that are moving into final phases of clinical trials. This is not like the first, you know, round of of, of testing them, and they've all shown some promising activity. Uh, the only way for us to move those forward is really ra- running those what we call randomized clinical trials, where a hundred patients will get the current standard and 100 patients will get the current standard plus those medications. Most of the time, patients also will ask me about this. Like, in many of those, especially when we get to the advanced stages, there is no really sugar uh, pill or, like, placebo for the patients. Like, everybody will get at least the backbone of the standard treatment. So that's how we get drugs approved. So many of those are in that phase. So I would say there are, like, several of those drugs, actually, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, like, we've not had time where we had this number of clinical trials in Phase three in MDS. So I'm really uh, hopeful and excited that we'll translate that to, uh, you know, new options for our patients.
1: Well, thank you. And and, uh, someone else is asking, uh, Dr. Kamarashi, about the spelling of some of these drugs. Um, And obviously there are complex terms um, and they are complex diseases, I mean, complex actually terms. I'm just wondering, um, is there a site that you can recommend that people go to that really spells out these different, um, or are you able to spell out some of them um, just so um, some of the key, some of the um, drugs that you've mentioned just so people can, um, they seem to actually really want to write them down or? Do you, want to, do you want to give us a link that we can provide um, our participants then to go to um, to get the uh, spelling of some of these drugs?
3: Yeah, I can send you that. Like, I can try, and I don't know how much time we have, whether we're going to take mm-hmm. other questions answering, and maybe mm-hmm. I can send you this at the end so that we don't take time spelling this and, okay. you know, not answering more <laughs> important <laughs> questions. But if there are no more, no more questions at the end, I will spell them out.
1: Okay, excellent. And if there might be a site, I don't know if there's a site that might actually have some of the uh, drugs, uh, you know, spelled out that we could give to people that might be helpful as well. So, okay, so we'll, we'll take some more questions and then we'll come back. <laughs> okay, so that person who asked that question, we'll definitely come up with a, a response to, um, either we'll give you a, a website to go to or we'll give you a um, a link to get those, um, or, or Dr. Kambraji will spell some of those out for you. And a question um, for Dr. Messa, is it safe to take the COVID vaccine um, if I have MDS?
2: So, one, we always recommend that you check with your doctor. Uh, but, but that said, uh, there, as it relates to MDS patients, we believe that it should be safe for MDS patients to receive the COVID vaccine uh, overall. There's some subtle differences between them, and MDS patients can can be on a very broad spectrum in terms of both their health as well as the, the strength of their immune system. I think the, the 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 second question is: Is it effective? And we believe that largely it is. Uh, it's clearly an evolving process. Uh, we do know that that patients with blood diseases like MDS may have uh, not as robust a response to a vaccine as people in the general public but that even uh but some of them might uh some of them that may have a a lower response may still have enough of a response that it prevents them from either having covid or if they develop covid it helps the uh the severity of covid to be significantly less so Overall, I have been recommending for my NBS patients to receive the, the COVID vaccine, uh, and I can't say that I've had any difficulties in terms of patients receiving it. Uh, but what, I, I, I ask uh, Rami what has his, been his experience with his patients at Moffitt.
3: Yeah, no, I, I agree, uh, Ruben. Like, we've had similar experience, like, in, in general, I think it is safe, uh, we've not encountered any, you know, side effects for some of our MDS patients uh, that got it, uh, uh, so I think it's 100% almost safe. Uh, uh, I, I think the efficacy may vary, uh, it's exactly as you mentioned, depends on the type of the disease, the MDS, the blood counts, where are we in the treatment, and so forth uh but uh, it may be that the efficacy is like not ninety five percent like the you know studies have shown in the general population uh maybe a little bit less uh, but all over I would say it's very safe and we've been recommending for most of our patients to take the the vaccine excellent okay that's that's
1: a good an that's uh um important answer for people to hear and um so um uh that's really i hope everyone will take that to your back to your health treating healthcare team and, and discuss that if you've been hesitant about getting the vaccine that you want to discuss it with your healthcare team but what you're hearing on this program is it's important um to really strongly consider this um, and then um so another uh question actually um for dr Hamraji, um
3: are most treatments done at the hospital or orally so that, that's a very good question, and that's very important as we are moving, you know, towards more outpatient and even during the COVID time. So many, many of those are, you know, administered at cancer centers, uh, so it's not inpatient in the hospital. Uh, like if we go through the available therapies approved uh, for patients now, the Vidaiza and the Dacogen, uh, which are approved by the FDA, had been an injection given either in the vein or under the skin, that the patient will have to go to the doctor's office for certain consecutive days, typically five or seven days, and then come back a month later. So they're like five to seven days every month. And those can be administered at, you know, uh, community oncology for, uh, doctor offices. Uh, it can be done, you know, in in cancer centers like with Dr. Mesa or myself. Um, but there is... Some of those are moving to oral medication. So now, as I mentioned, there is uh, a drug called Encovi, I N, K O V I, uh, that's approved by the FDA, which is basically oral decitabine or oral dacogen that can be administered at home. Uh, again, it requires still close monitor uh, monitoring, follow up of the blood count. Uh, but many patients uh, during the COVID infection, particularly, they wanted to have less and less, uh, you know, visits to the office. So, you know, some of the patients were shifted to that when that became available. Uh, In terms of the treatments that are being developed, uh, it's variable. Some of them are, you know, intravenous. Some of them are oral medications. Uh, But there is kind of a hope, like, down the road that we are going to have some combinations of completely medications given as pills for patients with MDS or leukemia, uh, there are some studies going with this oral dicogen and this pill called uh, Venetoclax, the oral, uh, that those are even for acute myeloid leukemia, the more aggressive blood cancer, where they are all done as pills. Uh, but again, the patient has to come for appointments uh, to follow up on blood counts, assess need for transfusions, et cetera. So I think we are moving more and more to outpatient uh, uh, treatments, uh, oral treatments uh, uh, that require less Visits from the
1: patients. Excellent. Thank you. Important, very very important. It's a it's a big change in the treatment of cancer in general and blood cancers. It's it's a bit and it's just the timing of this during covid has been a really um very important step forward. So I uh, thank you for that question. and Thank you for that wonderful answer. Thank you. Um and um so a question for Dr. Messer, why isn't MDS treated immediately like other blood cancers?
2: Well, I would say that many patients with MDS we do treat after the time of diagnosis. You know, so there's not necessarily a a, a delay. Uh, I would say that that as we think about blood cancers, they they all exist on a spectrum, and there are cancers like MDS, uh, follicular lymphoma, lower stages of myeloma, others. Where we may have a period of observation before active therapy is 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 uh, utilized. So it's always a balance in terms of you know when do we start therapy? If we're starting therapy, what are our goals? Uh, what is, what does success for that therapy look like? And likewise, if that therapy isn't helpful, how do we identify that? And and how do we change? So I would say it's not too dissimilar from other blood uh blood diseases, blood cancers, uh, but they do vary in terms of uh how rapidly we we treat how aggressively we treat excellent
1: um, and Dr. Kamrashi, do you want to add
3: to that? No, I agree with Dr Ramamasa. like I think you know the other thing would be obviously again goes back to what he was mentioning at the beginning is the goal of our therapy. Because you have to take things in the context of what we are doing, right? So uh, if we have a higher risk disease and we sit down with the patient and discuss that this is a disease, unfortunately, that's going to affect survival in the coming couple of years, we start thinking of a transplant. Uh, Allogenic stem cell transplant is curative, but it has like 20% transplant-related mortality. So the question, is it worth it now for us to take uh, the timing of the transplant to take that Upfront risk, I always tell patients in a way we have to see bad disease features uh, uh, or risk to justify a risky procedure, so sometimes not moving to a treatment immediately means that the disease risk is not that bad that you know the, the side effects or potential complications of the treatment could be more. The other thing in in, in the lower risk disease, as he mentioned also, if we were trying to alleviate the low blood count, prevent transfusions. And so far, we don't have, if you know, direct, you know, evidence that if we intervene early on, if patients are completely asymptomatic, that will change the natural history. I hope that this will change because there are diseases where you are right. We don't wait. Like if somebody has chronic myeloid leukemia, where we have a very, very effective treatment, uh, we don't wait. But many other diseases, uh, since we don't have a treatment that's that effective uh we uh, go back to see what are our goals, weigh the benefit and the risk of the treatment, see what's the evidence that those medications can change the natural history of this disease and based on all that you know we decide when when to treat excellent thank you um, and
1: um question f- uh for um Dr. Messa, how can I prepare my immune system for treatment?
2: Well, the immune system certainly uh, is dependent on on many things, right? and, and fortunately, you know, many patients with MDS, their immune system is working reasonably well. Although there certainly are there are exceptions, and those in which the white blood cell count is particularly lower. I do think uh, having a good diet, uh, trying to get adequate amounts of sleep, uh, trying to have things in balance, always help the body's own internal healing mechanisms and help to have our uh, immune system in the strongest shape possible. Adequate rest, good nutrition, uh, all of these sorts of things are important to have your body had the best chance to help you fight off whatever illness you're facing. Excellent, thank you, uh,
1: Dr. Kamaraj, did you want to add anything to that? No, I think I
3: that's covered it uh, very nicely. So
1: excellent. And now we do the question about diet, which we had all been discussing before the program started. Actually, um, so I'm wondering if um, if our speakers. Um, oh. Well, I'm gonna give you an exact question and then, um Yes, any ch- is there any evidence that changes in diet will improve MDS? Are there any alternative um medicine therapies that are proven um to help? So um we have Ms. Baird on the call who's a dietitian and we have our two um medical oncologists, hematologists, oncologists on the call. Um so um, would you all want to weigh in on that question because it's one that I guess we've, I think many people um, raise a great deal. And so Miss um, uh, Beard, do you want to start with that one?
4: Uh, sure. Absolutely. You know, it is, it's a question that I get a lot actually. And um, you know, a balanced diet and and is really bringing in, you know, protein, um, a variety of uh, fruits and vegetables, whole grains um, you can have dairy products. Um, just a balanced eating. Um, this balanced diet is going to give yourself, give your body a variety of phytochemicals, antioxidants, protein, fiber, um, all the things, vitamins and minerals that we need to have our body function as optimally as possible. And definitely meeting with your dietitian, um, they can help with if you have any other comorbidities. Kind of, you know, specializing. Um, that or, or making that diet a little bit more unique for your specific needs um, is an important thing to do. But um, there's not a magic diet or um, a specialized diet. Um, you know, not one fruit or vegetable is not superior to another. Um, I get a lot of questions about supplementation and if if I sh- if patients should drink certain juices and only eat organic and. The answer is no. I mean, just truly a whole food approach, real food, a balanced diet, um, and, you know, maintaining hydration, getting good rest is is what you can do from a nutrition standpoint um, to to best optimize, you know, fortifying um, or giving your body what it needs um, through food to function optimally. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you. And do
1: any of our other speakers want to weigh in on, on this as well? <laughs> I think it's a question that everyone's got to ask. So.
2: Dr. Messer, Dr. Kamarashi? No, I, I think that was well stated. You know, I think, one, trying to follow any diet is probably better than kind of, you know, the standard situation in the U.S. So people ask, is one diet better than another? I think the fact that you're trying to follow any diet usually means that you're paying more attention to what you're eating, the composition of your diet, as well as volume. You know, I I think that the simplest diet, if if people want to refer to one in particular that is helpful, not only with MDS patients, but I think for general good health, is what they recommend as the Mediterranean diet. But again, I think uh, a good balanced diet, whatever is good for being healthy overall is particularly helpful for you if you have MBS. And Dr. Kamrashi,
3: do you want to add anything? No, I, I agree as well. Like, you know, sometimes obviously if patients' blood counts are very low in neutropenic, they have a precautionary kind of diet. There are certain things they have to avoid to avoid the risk of infection. Uh, but as well stated uh uh, by my colleagues, a healthy, balanced diet, maintaining activity, uh, all helps. Uh, we do see some patients sometimes go, uh, you know, taking a lot of supplements and vitamins. And, and my take on those that they are not well studied in the context of MDS. There could be definitely some benefits. Uh, but mega doses of antioxidants uh, could also antagonize or, you know, negatively affect our treatment so i tell patients if they feel comfortable with the idea of a multivitamin once a day that's fine but i will not overdo that um i, I think many of those things are marketed but not proven to have a you know benefit for patients
1: okay. um and then a spell last question for dr kamrashi um can you elaborate on the phase 1 2 um, and preliminary phase three results for pevonedistat in treating MDS.
3: Sure. So pevenendostat is a drug uh, works an enzyme or a process called nedelation. Uh, it was tested in the past in leukemias, showing some activity. So they move forward testing it in in MDS patients. Uh, uh, they've phase 1 or phase 2 the phase 2 was actually a randomized clinical trial uh, looking at uh, leukemia free survival so they look at how long did it take to to progress to leukemia as well as the overall survival and the responses and patients were given you know uh, a alone or adacytidine plus pembrolizumab which is actually an injection given iv During the week of the uh, azacitidine, uh, like uh, on three different occasions, if I recall correctly. Uh, So in the combination showed, you know, particularly in the the study included different groups: patients with a disease called CMML, patients with disease called uh, uh, like oligoblastic AML, so it's crossed already to the acute myeloid leukemia, but low percentage of blast, and the higher risk MDS. And particularly in the higher-risk MDS patients, the study met what we call as the primary endpoint. So it showed an advantage in, in the leukemia-free survival, so pushing leukemia away and maybe slightly some survival advantage. It was not looked at the overall survival. But when we look also at the response uh, rate, they were almost doubled or tripled. Historically, we see around 15 to 20% of the patients when treated with Vidaza. Uh, they go into a complete remission, which means leukemia cells are down below 5% and the counts are normal. Uh, with the combination, it was more than 50%, and the combination was relatively very well tolerated. Bevendostat did not add any you know, uh, side effects to what we see typically with the VIDASA. So now it's in phase 3 uh, study to confirm those findings, particularly focusing on those patients with higher-risk MDS, and hopefully that trial will be uh, positive, uh, confirming that benefit. So it will lead to the approval. And I think what you know investigators are thinking about this drug that it's appealing because of the tolerability, that it can be used in combination with, with other you know promising drugs that are also being combined with azacitidine. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants as well for they're really asking such terrific questions. Um, and, yeah, I want to actually thank all of you for your participation on this call today. Um, it's really been a phenomenal uh, call and also shows a lot of the advances in the treatment of MBS. And, yeah. Um, in progress in the treatment of MDS, and so I want to thank you all um, for this uh, program. I do know that there are many more questions in queue, and that we could really spend another hour on them. But we really have a defined amount of time that we said we'd be on this program. So I just wanted to remind all of you that, indeed, um, that for those of you who were able to ask a question, and we want you to go back to your treating healthcare team and and ask them, of course, um, for. You know, to ask them to respond to your question. Um, again, um, we also want you to, um, uh, for those of you who are listening and to um, actually have a question, we want you to also um, ask your question to your healthcare team. And for those of you who didn't get to ask your question, again, ask your healthcare team. Most importantly, for those of you with um, with questions, we want you to be sure to, um, you know, to. Go to your healthcare team with your questions. Um, we we strongly recommend you utilize your healthcare team for that, um, and um, that they are, they know the most about you. We also, at the end of this program today, will be sending all of you um, a SurveyMonkey evaluation, and in that SurveyMonkey evaluation, we'll also include um, all of the resources that um, we can come up with for all of you um, so there were questions about names of drugs and things like that that we can think of resources where you can get those names some of them spelled out to you. Some of the organizations of course do have um, listings of those um, products so that you can actually access them um, and um, so I again want to thank you all for your for today and I don't want any one of you to think you're alone in coping with um, MDS We so want you to know now that you're part of a community of support and we're all here to help you and many of the uh, blood cancer organizations, of course, are a terrific resource for all of you to uh, take advantage of, and so we'll be sending you those that, that information as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.